think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 121 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 122nd episode. I'm Laura Carbonell. <laughs> I am Eaton Rainville. So, something funny there? It's, you know, uh, it's just an interesting time we're living in. It is, isn't it? Uh, er, 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 if, uh, the, the sounds and the, the, the sonic landscape of my I am I am lucky days. enough, I mean, two years ago... Um, two years ago, three years ago, whatever it's been now. I guess it was three years ago because it's pre-COVID. Better, better part of three. Yeah, the, yeah. the COVID years, honest to God, barely remember them. They really, yeah. I, I forget them in all my calculations. Uh, but I would have been living right downtown where all of the action is. Um, yes. I, I mean, we lived across the street from each other at that point. We did. Um, we so did. we both would have been, um, you know, in the thick of it as it were but i now live on the far reaches of ottawa um yes. so this is not a bourbon this, is, as this has not been a um, an issue in my life aside from seeing one truck um with a flag on it so i am as far removed as uh an ottawa resident can be um which is one of the several reasons this is not going to be something that i think features strongly in the podcast today the others being um it has been covered extensively the <laughs> in the news already. Yes. There is other more political news to talk about, well, more procedural, you know, nuts and bolts politics news to talk about. Yes. And uh, I don't know that we have a unique value add to talking about the, the truckers protest. No. Um, it, it may come up just in the context of what we're talking about otherwise, which is, of course, the, the big news that today... The Conservative Party Caucus, using the Reform Act procedures uh, that were first uh, put into effect, I guess, in 2015? Is that when that private member's bill would have passed? Might have been 2014. Uh, Michael Chong's private member's bill. Um, 2015. That empowered... Yeah, that's what that's my recollection as well. That empowers caucuses to uh, remove leaders um, in Australian-style spills, uh, which people thought would be great fun. Uh, so here we have our first, uh, not counting the um, the sort of unceremonious uh, sort of shoving out the door of Andrew Scheer, uh, which I guess was a caucus coup, but did not involve any votes. So we have our first one uh, of, of Aaron O'Toole, and uh, as longtime listeners of this podcast will recall, Aaron was a mem- was a, was a guest here. Uh, a long time, it was, ago, it was like so, two episodes ago because we haven't recorded yeah. a lot lately. So so. Of course, uh, our um, having having gotten two months of reprieve uh, from his the the bump of his appearance on the show, uh, we are now unfortunately at the at the end of his uh, career as the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada. So, big development. Well, you're you're the conservative here. What do you what do you think? I mean, it's yeah. There's there's no overstating. It's obviously a significant development, as I've said on this podcast. <laughs> really? Um, <laughs> would, would you you would you would go so far as to say it's significant? Yeah. I'm, I'm leaning in that direction. Um, okay. No, obviously it is. Um, as longtime listeners of the show would note, or might recall, I was very supportive of Aaron in the first leadership, as well as the second leadership. Um, incidentally, he listened to the podcast. That led to us having him on. Um, went over to Stornoway, had some beers, recorded a podcast, had a great time. So those are kind of my priors, um, putting them out there. Um, you know, today's vote, uh, 
was pretty decisive. I would um, say so. 70... 75 to 40-something? I was going to say 72 to 45. Some, something like that. Um, yeah. Which... So, the, the way I heard it... And there was some, like, discussion about whether or not this was just uh, spin being put out by the Aaron O'Toole camp. But it kind of goes back to the... Um, not same-sex marriage, but... Um, The conversion therapy. The conservatives introduced a unanimous consent motion um, to basically pass it all through all the stages. And it was supported unanimously by the Liberals, NDP, and obviously the Bloc. Unanimous consent only requires one MP to throw their hand up and put a wrench in things. Um, When it passed at the time, I think we may or may not have uh, noted it on the podcast, but it struck me as strange that the hard-edge social conservative caucus... Um, there was let, much discussion of this Let the time, this happen, yeah. um, because it only takes one of them to, to resist, and the whole, the whole thing goes out the window. What I've... The account, as I've heard it, is that um, the way it was relayed to the party, uh, to members of the party... Sorry, not members, to the party caucus... The MPs was that um, the leadership did not think that this vote was going to pass, um, so the the liberals were going to resist it. So let's just do it um, and see what happens. Um, but there was a sense that they were duped in that there was a sense by some that this was coordinated with the liberals, and so when the motion came up, it passed unanimously, um, and the social conservatives were tricked a few other bits of color to add here for consideration it my 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 to disclose my priors i think that's very funny (laughs) thank you (laughs) one of the most uh let's say procedurally inclined social conservatives garnet genius uh i've never been i I pronounce his last name differently every time i'm sorry i always forget how it's actually this this is not abnormal for um was traveling uh, at the time, so was not around when this was happening. Otherwise, he is yes. likely the person who would have put a stop to this. Um, the other s- social conservatives who were likely to oppose this on principle either are not proceed or either not procedurally adept enough. You know, we're not in the House of Commons, et cetera, et cetera. When unanimous, cons- when you like procedurally, when you see motions come up, they are right after question period and there is a lot of hubbub going around and people are leaving the chamber often and so it's very easy to let things slide there's stories of like you know opposition sliding through uh unanimous consent motions that the government agrees to even though it takes away like procedural powers from the government because no one is paying you know significant enough attention yeah that works when you're duping the government but the um story as it's been relayed to me is that um, members of the caucus were not happy about how this happened, you know, how it was framed, etc. How, how it was presented by leadership. Um, that seems to be the seed of it. There was, um, you know, framing... A, a lot of people on the other sides of the issue were pushing back in the last 24, 48 hours because O'Toole's team came out and basically said... Um, this is the hard edge SOCONs. Revenge for this. Yeah, this yeah. is this is the hard edge SOCONs. 
Um, yeah. But it does, and and as such, casting everyone in opposition to Aaron O'Toole as the Hearted Shokans, and so you don't want to align yourself with the Hearted Shokans. <laughs> it, it, it's funny. A, a page taken directly out of Justin Trudeau's mm-hmm. playbook, which is, you, you do have to love to see that. That is pretty funny. So, um, fast forward a little bit. You know, it, it hasn't been that long, but... Uh, He's been learning from the best, you could say. But you fast forward a little bit, and you get to a vote of 70-whatever to 40-whatever. And, you know, there are not 70 hard-edged Socons in the caucus. It is clear that there was um, other, you know, it, it, they pulled across multiple camps of folks who were unha- ultimately unhappy with the leadership um, that resulted <laughs> in that loss. Uh, or, and in Ot- uh, Aaron O'Toole losing his job. How, you know, how does one feel, at the, uh, feel about this? I think, you know... Any party leadership turnover, um, you know, there's there's mixed feelings. Some folks say they feel energized. Other folks are going to feel sad. The wrong, I think the wrong attitude to be is kind of like celebratory. Um, you know, feeling yeah. energized about the future, turning over a new leaf. All of these things, I think, is appropriate never, for a political party. Yeah. But there's, in politics, particularly the the lens and the angle from which we view politics, there is a very real human cost to... Um, these decisions yeah. right it's a, a guy's to, career um you know friends and family we know political staffers who started to work <laughs> for him two days ago it, it, you know examples of that or yeah. i can think of someone who's on their honeymoon um and is in that office and uh uh <laughs> bad news um yeah so like there there are very real human costs and there are a lot of grudges resentment anger that can be caused you know not only by the changeover of um from leader to interim leader and the whole process that kicks off with it but also in the intervening now x months um until a new leader is chosen it is a time in which a lot of wounds are opened up for a party and there's a lot of things said that are not said during normal times as various camps go at each other and in jockeying for position and I, I said this more or less, I think, in the fall when we sort of discussed the results of the election. But leadership transitions are very hard. Um, I mean, leaving aside the human cost of this, which is real, for sure. Um, like, it's a lot... Every party puts a lot of work into getting their leader known. Mm. Uh, and you have to restart all of that work. Um so and getting buy-in from caucus and all of this and managing the new relationships bringing new staff in blah 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 all of this is in and every day the next election gets closer um and you have to take this this quite large leap into a an unknown a pit of unknown unknowns uh, as it were so it, it's going to like i think you know you can you this is something you do when you're you're sure that whatever you're going to pull out of the hat is gonna be better than what you had um and we can talk about whether that was a justified belief or not but i think uh i mean you look back at the mulcair thing i think members were so disgusted by the 2015 campaign having flashbacks to epistemology Um, class with uh justified true beliefs there you go um but yeah members were so pissed off after that campaign because because not only was it a, a you know quite marked shift to a very centrist campaign and the, the balanced budget pledge and all of this and then to lose half their seats for their trouble 
I think was just like a bridge too far for NDP members. Uh, I myself among them. Um, and, and they voted to get rid of Mulcair. So that's, I think, and they're very emotional moments. And I'm sure that this caucus meeting is quite emotional in similar ways. Uh, I, so we, we didn't really want to talk about the trucks too much. I do wonder what the role of the trucks in, in precipitating this is, if any. And I don't know. I'm, I'm sort of asking you well, to speculate here. Yeah, and, and the short answer is, I don't know. I feel like, in very real ways, this felt like it came up very quickly. Um, yes. I was asked let's say three odd weeks ago what I thought um, Aaron O'Toole's odds were um, of maintaining leadership into the next election or, or at least until the uh, the vote um, which was set for 2023 um, and I think I pegged it at 60-40 or 65-45 like around that range ultimately turns out I was uh, adding up to 100 right. <laughs> just because your, your belief was that strong <laughs> Uh, I've never, I've never claimed to be good at math. Um, and you know, it seemed, it obviously seems like I was wrong on that. Um, but the lead up here for a while, it seemed like things were going well. The, um, you know, the voices of dissent, the, the most prominent voice of the dissent was Denise Batters, a conservative senator, um, who got... Um, removed from Senate caucus, although there was some sort of wishy-washy pushback where the Senate, uh, where the conservative Senate caucus, I can't remember, didn't, opted not. They reinstated her as a member of the Saskatchewan caucus. Yeah, so there was, there was some of those little things that I think would grate on a leader, but were not super, I I wouldn't take uh, under normal circumstances to be super telling of sort of the reins of power, you know, the conservative uh, Senate Caucus. It doesn't seem like they were the movers and shakers. Yeah, right? it's, like, it's, yeah it's one uh, an step irritant, removed but not a from one. the Senate, you know, from yeah. the House of Commons and the the actual people who put their names on ballots. Um, so they're, you know, they kind of, senators are kind of senators. They're always going to do their own thing a little bit. Um, yeah. And that was the most vocal dissenter one had. There were some other notable blips. Um, the handling of the ejection of, uh, what's his name? Uh, Derek Sloan as well at, you know, there, there's some other ones. So there were, there were some few blips, but it seemed like from a leadership perspective, they were all being managed and there was not, you know, when Aaron, when Sheer, by contrast, uh, went to make his shadow cabinet, Ed Fass, a notable um, former Harper minister and one of sort of the elder statesmen of the Conservative Party um, opted out of any cabinet posts um, very publicly, which was a very public challenge to Shear's leadership very early on, coming from mm-hmm. the you know the senior ranks of the of the uh, House of Commons caucus. It didn't yeah. seem like Aaron was facing anything as significant. And of course, what did sheer in ultimately was not a direct challenge from MPs. It was presumptively spending nonsense around private schools and misuse of funds was kind of the 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 nail in the coffin. So, yeah. you know, 
all of that in, it seemed like the coast. He had some some room to breathe and some room to to orient himself until this last week. Um, and yeah. I couldn't tell you how you know I could guess to put a number on it, but I struggle to articulate how much that has to do with the trucker protest because on the face of it, it doesn't really have anything to do with it. But it also, you know, if it's the... <laughs> the timing seems... There's this yeah, obvious the, the X, timing fact, seems, X variable uh, here. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, and of course, you know, this type of protest always puts um, conservative leaders in a awkward position, most notably with Sheer yeah. um, several years ago. Aaron O'Toole very obviously tried to draw a, a fine line. There were prominent voices um, who were more comfortable embracing the uh, the trucker protesters. Leslie Lewis and Pierre Polyev amongst them. Um, they took the the more welcoming tact. Um, you know, is it the straw that broke the camel's back? It quite possibly is. Um, would this have happened? you know two weeks later if it's the 18 wheeler that obliterated the camel at 120 kilometers per hour would this have maybe happened even if the trucker protest wasn't there i think likely i think if you're at 70 plus percent or 70 plus votes um yeah that was was, well i think that's the other happiness in, in terms of caucus management i think what happens to your margins if the truckers aren't there even if this happens right i think it's just there's a yeah, I don't know. It's impossible to know, obviously, but I think it, it is interesting to think now, about. Now, uh, just make one more point. Go ahead. We don't yes. know, Please feel uh, free. except for those who've copped to it, um, you know, it's a secret vote. We don't know who those 70 plus percent are, but even among those who copped to it, they seem to present a broad um, brush from the Conservative Party ranks, from, you know, old, you know, PCs through to... Um, this the hearted social conservative caucus that we referenced earlier. Um, so it's tough. It's tough to categorize those folks, of course, not knowing who they are. Um, but of those who have self-identified, it seems to be a pretty wide group. And of course, at 70 plus percent, you're, you're talking like two thirds of caucus. So uh, you're, yeah. you're going to cr- cut across uh, sort of in-group lines. Yes. No, it, it's definitely a, it's quite a moment. Uh, I, I do think that this kind of, and this is sort of the broader point here, is I think COVID is really what has been, like, the political killer for conservative opposition parties, and Aaron O'Toole in particular, where there's some, I think this was an Abacus's polling analysis, and listeners of this podcast can feel free to go look at the slides that uh, David Coletto put up after uh, the election. But if you look, and it, I forgive me if I've discussed this before on the show, and you've, you've heard me talk about this before. Uh, but if you look at sort of the trajectory of the election, you had the conservatives very strong early and then softening kind of through the middle. And then you really had a situation a week before E-Day where it was kind of anyone's game um, in, a, in a very real sense. And then what happened is you had big outbreaks in Alberta and Saskatchewan. The salience of COVID as an issue skyrocketed and COVID was the issue on which people did not trust the conservatives. An election about if you have the last week of the election that is about the economy instead of about COVID, there's a pretty good chance Aaron O'Toole is prime minister right now. Uh, however, that didn't happen, and he isn't. So here we are, and I think the playbook on his side of things was the sooner 
like let's just stop talking about COVID as much as humanly possible. Let's just focus on the economy and, and just inflation and all the rest of it. Not a thing. Uh, at the and time, I think that that's smart. Not not a thing at the time. Well, no, I mean this. We're talking no, I, about I mean like. Uh, I don't think the term had been coined yet. No, no, but sure. But like through yeah, December, yeah. like you know, the, the end of last year, I think the 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 play for them was just like you know, like everyone's vaccinated, no new uh, variants in a while. That's pre Omicron. Uh, let's just focus on the economy and get ready to fight the next election on that. And COVID will disappear as an issue. COVID did not disappear as an issue. Um, and they were left. And, and like, I, I just don't know what the game plan could have been on that. If you look around the country right now, there are two conservative parties who are in opposition. Um, and they are Aaron O'Toole's conservative party and the BC liberals. I think that when you are in government and you look at, Doug Ford and you look at Jason Kenney in a conservative party like neither of those guys is having an easy time with their caucus uh Jason Kenney perhaps especially right now Are we especially um uh yeah because they're they have their own politics <laughs> um okay. and their own part no but like their party coalitions are different right like it's I'm not just, the same I'm just being um, and rigid and honestly in Atlantic Canada in general like they're just less along the same ideological cleavages, like more so than perhaps 20 years in the past, but still not quite to the degree that is present in like Saskatchewan and Alberta politics or BC. So you look around the country to, to Doug Ford, Jason Kenney, especially Scott Moe to a lesser extent. Uh, they've had difficulty like keeping caucus on side and they've always had a very powerful tool at their disposal, which is all of the carrots and sticks of being in government. And that's huge. Uh, like they've had to own the policies, which Aaron O'Toole hasn't had to do. Um, but in a sense, it's almost harder to be in opposition and being forced to take positions on things without getting any of the credit for actually implementing them and then having to deal with the fallout of ideological opponents of those decisions disagreeing with them on one side or the other. Um, so like, I think that that's been really, really, really corrosive to his leadership in particular and to the BC Liberals, I think, have had a absolute bitch of a time getting their shit together for similar reasons so yeah i mean i just don't know that like someone more adept would have done a better job because i just think like these questions are frankly just impossible for a conservative coalition to survive prolonged exposure to without the sort of ameliorative effects of having power uh it's just like i i don't know that there was a better play in the book than like at some point you got to just wait for this to end like after you know two years like it's just like the, the coalition just isn't gonna stand for much more of you know anything on this front so let's just pivot to the economy and hope that's where it goes and uh that hail mary has not worked out yeah i i think that is going to be you know in the interview we had with erin o'toole um recently um <laughs> i i noted the extent to which uh, he flagged the hardships of becoming leader during COVID. Um, and that's certainly going to be the asterisk on his career or on his career as leader of the uh, official opposition is that it, it was entirely mediated through the crisis of COVID. Um, you know, there'll, there'll be comparisons to uh, Dion Ignatieff is the obvious one that a lot of people are making right now or Malker. Um, but fundamentally, all of those folks basically had a normal run of it um, during normal time. Well, plus or minus the, the Great Recession. Um, 
but that's kind of in the more normal ebb and flow of political life sure because i mean that was that was then, just like that was an economics issue, yeah. right it was like what we have to do is cut the deficit that, that's kind of what i mean it's much more within the realm yeah. of normal um than a than a two plus year pandemic in which people are locked in their houses and you know i, I don't i don't i don't need going to tell nuts, folks frankly, what the right? pandemic like, is about yeah but if you're listening to this as like a phd student 30 years later perhaps uh perhaps you will find that we we were all going nuts. We were never putting on pants. It was a whole Tiger whole thing. King. Yeah, look, look it up. Um, yeah. So I mean, all that is to say, really challenging conditions um, that made for a very unique, I think, experience as leader of the official opposition, and one that you know no one else is likely to face. Um, we're on yeah. uh, budget. Finish the fight five. Um, perhaps. <laughs> This sure. is the one that actually finishes the fight. Um, yeah. By this time next year, perhaps we have a new leader, depending on how long Leoc um, takes to put together the leadership race and the rules and the deadlines and the fundraising and all the rest of that. Uh, but it is quite likely that... Is that the, leadership election organizing that committee? That is correct. But, it, but yeah, it's quite likely that the next leader um, comes in like... I don't want to get ahead of myself in terms of COVID wrapping up, um, but it is very conceivable that the next leader is appointed. Let's say about a they do not face the same a year from yes, now, is a, is and they are they get the recovery mode, like the full fledged recovery, and uh, no one's yeah. wearing masks anymore, and it's a very different position, and a position which they're yeah. more likely to succeed than a conservative leader in opposition during COVID. Yes, uh, and, and I mean, I'll, I think that's the other challenge too. Is like, I mean, f- quite candidly, like I think O'Toole was on track to be prime minister. Um, like, I think there are very good odds he would have won the next election. I think the Liberals trying to paint him as very scary didn't really work. Um, it was just not very credible. Uh, he basically the Liberals win by scaring people in the very big pool of people who are open to voting liberal NDP but don't have a very strong attachment to either they win elections when they can scare those folks into voting liberal or at least a very large proportion of them um and with a non-scary conservative leader that just gets hard um I think if you were to take another conservative leader just picking one completely random here notionally Pierre Polyev <laughs> Completely uh, random. Uh, so, Out of the entire caucus, so someone who is just bit, throwing, yeah, throwing just, a dart. Yeah, just picking a guy. That. Yeah. I think they don't have a hard time convincing those folks that this guy is someone they don't want to be prime minister. And there are a lot of them. So, I don't know. Obviously, he could win. Like, it's if he runs. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, I, I think that they had a reasonably good bet in O'Toole and I think that the other bets on the table to me as someone who is not a conservative do not seem as good um but of course I have no say in this so it is it is all up to them and to you Etienne to so, uh, to decide where this is so let going. me present um the counter argument let me let me put on my my devil's advocate hat and present the counter argument because it goes okay. something like this it goes Conservatives do not win um, by aping liberals. 
They do not win by going to the mushy middle. Um, Conservatives win by being conservative and pulling um, popular opinion in the direction of their policies. And and so that is... That is the guiding philosophy of, I would say, 65 plus percent of people in the Conservative Party. Uh, And And, and look, as as someone who spent a lot of time in the NDP, (laughs) as someone who spent a lot of time in the NDP, like I've heard this before, right? Like this is not this is not a new speech to me. (laughs) And this is the guiding philosophy, I would say, of even an even higher percentage of sort of establishment conservatives. The challenge with that is that it's a fairly untested hypothesis. Um, So people talk about Harper a lot in this context, and I think it would really behoove people to think very hard about what Harper's sort of policy planks were, which was, first of all, very ethics-focused in a time when a a 15-year-old liberal government was imploding under the weight of its ethical scandals. Um, You had small small tax cuts and a bunch of tax credits. Uh, am I missing really big things here? No. I don't think so, right? So, like, I, you know, we can talk about mushy middle not winning elections. Like, cutting two points off GST and putting the lobbying conflict or interest acts in place is, like, it's not nothing. Like, don't get me wrong. Uh, but it's also not, like, a programmatic... Like, they went, actually, a lot out of their way to not look like programmatic ideologues because they knew that that would be a losing gamble. So, I don't know. I mean, look, the conservatives... And this is sort of the parallel of the NDP is like the conservatives are not the NDP in a lot of ways. Um, like they are a party of government. People join the conservatives as as members, as candidates, because there's the expectation that they're going to be in government at some point, And that is going to be good for the people who join in some capacity and because they want to move the needle on, on conservative policies. All, you know, that, that's not to knock that. The NDP is a party where that is not on the menu in most elections, right? Like, people join the NDP for, for kind of other reasons, and, like, the imminent expectation of being in government is not one of them. Like, there are people for whom the project is to make the NDP into a party that can contest government regularly, and that's its own sort of project, but, like, that's not why people are getting in. So... I find those kinds of like ideological purity arguments from the sort of perspective of a broader based, you know, large, it's not a bro. I mean, it is a brokerage party in perhaps a more explicit sense than the liberals are, um, at least in ideological terms, where it is bringing together really ideological camps to put aside their differences and adopt a sort of common minimum declaration of belief and, and move forward from there, where the liberals, like... Is there a diversity of opinion in the liberals? I don't know. (laughs) Great question. Uh, It doesn't seem like it from the outside that there's a whole ton of it. And if there is, it's very quiet. Uh, So all that to say... The must be implemented in 30 weeks or 60 weeks. Take your pick. Yes. Yes. Uh, All all that to say that I think, like... I don't know. Like, I'm sympathetic to the idea that what people want is what you want and you just have to make your case hard enough and like as someone who does have like strong ideological commitments i wish that were the case i wish it were as easy as win the leadership with the right guy write the right platform and if you build it they will come i i've sort of come to realize in the years since i got into politics that it is actually much harder than that and that there's a a lot of like coalition and movement building that you have to do over time that doesn't if you want to do like an ideological program is that you have to build support for that ideological program and not 
for a party as such. So, I don't know. It, it, like, I, I sort of applaud our conservative Maoists who believe that they need to, to do this, but there don't seem to be many of them. And most of the time it's... I, I don't really know what the folks who are like, we can't ape the liberals are thinking because historically, like... They haven't won by being crazy right wing. They really just haven't. They've won by ta- you know being conservative, the, sure, yeah. recognizably it's, conservative. It's worth noting the Reform not Party like... was never, you know, the the Conservative Party as it exists has put water in its wine in terms of where its positions were vis a vis reform. Right. The yes, in many many the spheres, Reform yes. Party has in a very real way. Um, taken over a lot of it and a lot of the old PCers I guess are on the, the dinner party circuit now um, yeah and and not as engaged in party politics and you know there are still PCers involved but I think they're somewhat marginalized in terms of um, the well they're outnumbered yeah, in terms of the footprint right? that Just they, that's what that you they, find a point on it they take up in the party vis-a-vis other interest groups um, but they certainly yeah. still exist However, as so, this was actually, it's interesting because it's actually the first time I ever heard this was in a speech from Pierre Polyev when I was an intern uh, some moons ago. Um, and he had, you know, some politicians he pointed to as the, you know, the, the Thatchers, the Reagans, whoever it was, who were ran on their ideological purity and moved the electorate to where they were. It, as we've talked about in recent Canadian history, you know, you know, the most recent example being Nova Scotia, obviously different, but indistinguishable from the Liberals. In PI, indistinguishable from the Liberals um, in many ways. So Atlantic Canada doesn't really have that. Um, yeah. The prairies are kind of their own beast. In Ontario, you know, a lot of the PCs getting elected in Ontario tends not to be with the ideological purity of... Mike Harris was obviously the exception yes. to this. Yeah, like, yeah, there are exceptions, but I'm just saying it's not a hard and fast rule, yeah. which is the way yeah. ideologues want to frame. Well, yeah, and, and even if you, yeah, if you look at Reagan and Thatcher, right, their context is that you had four years of, you know, to take Reagan first, four years of Jimmy Carter uh, and a sort of crumbling Keynesian post-war economic consensus, uh, the Volcker shock, etc., uh, coming right after and like you had a dying social order right like in, in a very real way like the, the sort of fabric of the economy as it had existed for like 35 years after the second world war was coming apart at the seams like you know COVID has been a significant crisis but that's not really what we're seeing right now um, and the, the same sort of situation prevailed for Thatcher at more or less the same time where you had you know the, the winter of discontent you had you know labor governments that could barely hold their own coalition together you had james callahan sort of as jimmy carter did implementing a soft version of their program in anticipation of them coming in um yeah like it was just a totally different time and i don't think you and they were just like quite notably like crisis points where i don't think you can just point at them and say they won an election because of how good they were at being ideological and call that the story like i think it, it as as ever with with any kind of like radical change you have to account for 
you know, like these were moments of crisis uh, fundamentally. And if you look at times when the NDP has gotten elected in various provinces for the first time, it's usually been moments of crisis too. I mean, uh, you look at Tommy Douglas in 44, you know, big generalized political crisis at the very least. You look at Bob Ray in, in 90, like kind of out of nowhere. Um, it, it just takes big changes and big systematic shakeups for people to look for serious ideological change and that's why if you want to be a serious ideological programmatic party of radical change then you can't expect to contest every election with the expectation of victory you need to basically like build support and wait for the moment so let me throw out an issue that i think uh rises often lately in sort of conservative chats um that kind of fits with the moment, which is uh, privatization of healthcare. <laughs> um, yes. I'm, yeah, I'm sh- not I'm a winner, sh- if you ask me, if that's where I'm, you're I'm going I'm sure you're that. not surprised by that, but there there yeah. is a contingent of people who believe that if, you know, if the Conservative Party, a common third rail uh, among politics is the privatization of healthcare because of uh, lessons learned from the United States and, and the shit show that is the healthcare system in the United States, um, but there's a contingent among the, in the Conservative Party that would like to see the Conservative Party be more vocal about healthcare and push the Overton window and push the conversation on um, areas like that with the view that, um, you know, there's an argument to be made for building capacity in our healthcare system by more dollars flowing into it, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, or your, my preferred solution, which is paying doctors less and hiring more of them. Wow, it's just creating five times. Give me an abundance of doctors. Give me 10x the number of doctors. Um, and then we can we can take it from there. Mm-hmm. Um, but obviously, yeah, I mean, we're, we're not here to discuss, you know, the policy of how we adjust um, the healthcare system. Uh, but just on the question of privatization, the conversation around privatization, one would think that if this was a moment of crisis, for the Canadian healthcare system, as you've just described, yeah. that you know the Canadian population would be open to alternatives that would provide um, solution and relief to our overtaxed hospitals or overtaxed ICUs, um, the wait lists, you know, the, yep. all, all of the perceived challenges. So, do you anticipate that there would be receptivity for the conversation around? Um, privatization of healthcare in the Canadian populace as a result of a healthcare or a pandemic that has taxed our healthcare system and in which, you know, people are looking for change or for change or for amelioration. Are they, are they likely to turn in this direction? I, I mean, the short answer to me is I have a hard time seeing it. Uh, and not because I think healthcare hasn't experienced a crisis. It obviously has. I think Canadian political identity and national identity to some extent is based on the idea of universal Medicare. Tommy Douglas, greatest Canadian. Yeah. And, and but the thing is, is that it's true. Um, I, I think people react really strongly to the idea of, of eroding Medicare. Uh, and you know, I'm sure conservatives will say, Oh, but we don't want to erode Medicare. We actually want to strengthen it by privatizing it. And in which case I would say, I, I wish you luck in advancing that line of argument. I don't think that's what most people are going to hear. And, like, could that argument be made in a sustained way over a long period of time? Like, yeah, sure. I, I think you can make it many arguments. Um, I have a hard time seeing that as the one that's going to unseat Justin Trudeau 
uh, whenever the next election is going to be. But hey, you know, fill your boots. My, my boots are full. Like, well, in that case, don't fill your boots. <laughs> fill someone else's. No, but I mean, really, like, I, I was kind of, I was being slightly tongue-in-cheek about national identity, but I think it is quite core to how a lot of Canadians think about their country in relation to our, our large neighbor and only neighbor. Um, and I think the other thing is that, you know, Medicare has a very, very strong constituency or coalition made up of many, many strong constituencies that are not going to take kindly to it and probably be quite vocal in the context of of proposals to change it in ways that they see as a fundamental attack on the structure of, you know, how we deliver healthcare. Yeah, I mean, there's an interesting parallel to be drawn to what's going on in Alberta and, you know, across many provinces, uh, increasing healthcare costs is increasingly taxing provincial budgets. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways to decrease um, or to support provincial budgets has been to try and take on the doctor lobby. Yes. Um, you know, this has long been identified as a problem, but the challenge is the doctor lobby has a lot of, you know, political capital they and do. a lot of social capital because people care about Well, doctors. yeah, I mean, you go back to the Medicare strike in, in, uh, in Saskatchewan and it was the same thing. The doctors were the most visible and sympathetic people and they came out big. Uh, against Medicare to begin with. So it was uh, it's not yeah. a new thing for doctors to oppose changes to the healthcare system. And in Alberta, Jason Kennedy's government started to try and do this with cutting costs well, in the Right at the beginning system. of the pandemic, as I recall, which was well, bad time. I think it predated the COVID pandemic, but the... Uh, a wiser government would have perhaps shelved that, but... Yeah, it, synchroni- it certainly did synchronize with... Uh, uh, the COVID pandemic at some point, which made it incredibly problematic. But but it should be noted the entire time, I think the NDP opposed it right off the hop because it was politically convenient for them, right? Sure. And that's that's the nature of being an opposition party. In many of course it is. Um, but just when it comes to trying to tackle some of these reforms that, you know, everyone agrees with on paper until you're in government versus opposition, then, you know challenges anyway i think we're a little off topic of where uh i think i wanted us to be on this conversation uh let let me let me go back to the news of the day because we're we're well off track from that um and just make the boys in short pants going well well off track well this is off track in an unusual direction which is sort of high concept policy oh hey you asked me man um which i was gonna make the point oh that okay so one of the points in conversation that comes up a lot right now is the um, conservative party constitution versus the Reform Act. Mm. And if you ask people in Ottawa, uh, you'll have a lot of views on the Reform Act. Not a ton of them are positive, incidentally. Um, a lot of people really don't like the Reform Act. But one of the things that you know is not opinion driven is the fact that the Reform Act does not actually jive with any of the parties. Uh, constitutions. The conservative constitution has ways to remove a leader, uh, death, uh, vote of the party, and a resignation letter, I think, are the three. Yes, the, the, uh, vote, the, vote the Viking party conservative party usually would, uh, would opt for that option, the, the death option. Um, however, um, the Reform Act is not provided in the party's constitution. Lisa Raitt made this point in a Twitter space yesterday. Um, and so there's a bit of a gray zone on um, in terms of removing a party leader via 
um, Reform Act versus the means and the mechanism set out in the party constitution. Yeah. Um, so, do you want my take on this? Is that what you're setting up for? Well, no. I'm actually I'm just here to preach. Okay. Uh, no. So I, I was going to say, listening to a, a Twitter space put uh, a Twitter space today on uh, you know the events of the day. Um, it really struck me that there were two groups. There were those that said uh, the Reform Act should never be used. Um, you know, it violates the rules of the party. We are a party of rules. Two wrongs don't make a right. Um, and we should not have done this. And we, we should have abided by the party constitution and using the Reform Act and in any way is a, you know, is a, a violation or usurping of the party constitution, the grassroots of the membership. The other perspective was we liked the use of the Reform Act. Um, the Reform Act should be used more often. It represents a pivot, uh, a returning to mother parliament and the traditions of the Westminster system where the caucus is empowered. Um, and boy golly, wouldn't it be nice if um, caucus took this power more often, not only conservative, but liberals and NDP, um, and availed themselves of these powers now set out by the Reform Act. Now I'll have you weigh in. Sure. So there's, I think, a couple levels here. Um, I think if you're going to adopt the Reform Act and its provisions as the sort of rule of the caucus at the top of every parliament, as the Conservative uh, caucus has since 2015, it, hasn't. You, it has adopted most of the provisions, not every single one, that's true. But like, I would say that at some point you should probably start encoding that into your constitution as a party. Naturally. Uh, yeah, like I think that that's plainly obvious. I don't know like, if, if Michael Chong ever introduced a resolution at the subsequent CPC uh, policy con uh, conventions, but uh, one would think he should have if he did not. Yes, no, sure. Like it's generally good for when you're drawing from multiple rule books for those rule books to align. You know, um, so the, the, on that level, sure. Like I think that's that's plainly obvious. Um, do, you, do you want my opinion on the Reform Act in, in sure. general? And its sort of give me your I mean, opinion on whatever you want to give me your opinion on. I think what people often complain about with the Reform Act, and I think they are, or when they are in favor of the Reform Act, I should say, is that caucus has a sort of daily stake in the health of the party, where people who vote in leadership elections don't. And I think that's plainly true, uh, especially when you have parties where you have decoupled any kind of significant membership capacity from you know any kind of real stake like the liberals have um i think like while that is true i think it's also the response to that isn't to i mean you have two options at that point right like you can sort of go back into a more 19th century model where the caucus is sort of the really the the final say in the direction of the party uh, which then makes it not really a democratic organization. It's a para-democratic organization where people who manage to win seats in the legislature become sort of part of the board of governors of a governing party or of an opposition party and sort of steer it according to their own preferences without really any binding mechanism connecting them to any sort of membership. Of course, not um, dissimilar from how MPs are... Um, empowered yep. to act on a, no, it, an average yeah party. and like frankly what i've just described is the normal parliament representative government of a party yes. yeah well no but of, of a party too right yeah. like when party policy party policy doesn't get developed by you know when an issue comes up 
um, we call around the EDA presidents, and, uh, and no, it's just like a, a guy on a laptop, like does some googling and finds something that's reasonable, talks to the critic. They go back and forth a couple times, talk to comms, they get some lines out, and that's that's the party policy at that point, right? Like it's not like what I what right. I described Wait, is, they, is in fact they don't what call all the EDA presidents. Sadly, not. What? Um, but yes, so but moving up from the sort of like day to day like functioning, which I think people can agree like on these kinds of things, there's there's room for the sort of like the technocratic part of the party, as it were, um, to to do this sort of daily day to day heavy lifting. Um, the sort of other route you have is going further towards a more democratic party where maybe you are calling the ADA presidents to sort of determine positions and things, or you have a sort of formal mechanism of members that are not members of caucus who, and I think, you know, like parties will have like the federal council for, um, the national council for the conservatives that sort of function like this, but they're not very empowered typically, uh, cause they meet so irregularly that like often stuff is, is a done deal by the time it gets to them. Um, so like, there's just models of party organization. I don't think like they're more or less legitimate or effective than each other. I, I think that like we should, it would be good to see an experiment with more party democracy in ways that are structured. I find often what happens when we're talking about party democracies, we're talking about like stuff at convention being more binding. And I think that that's a terrible idea because nothing that happens at convention is deliberated in a real way. Like I, I think there's ways to build in deliberation in a permanent way and engagement from members into parties that would deepen uh, a democratic sort of system of engagement rather than, than make it dumber and worse, uh, which is the, the sort of convention route. But, you know, I mean, like I don't have a strong take on the Reform Act other than I think yeah, like there plainly is an incompatibility between how the leader is selected uh, between party constitutions as they currently exist and the Reform Act, which is why the Conservatives so far, I think, have tended to be the only party that's adopted most of its provisions. So there you go. Yes. Yes. I, I think I agree with most of that. Uh... Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> we're trying to disagree more folks yeah i common critique um yeah i mean i think that's right there there's obviously a need to reconcile that and i am sure that that will be addressed now that the reform act has been used for the first time um that that will be exercised at the next policy convention yes um is it a big deal at the moment that the two don't square? No, like, uh, yeah, like right now it's sort of like the, the junta has seized the radio stations and, and no amount of pointing at the rule book is going to get them out of there, unfortunately. Yeah, so I, I think there there were dreamers at some point who were like, ah, Aaron O'Toole has been deposed under the Reform Act, but not the conservative constitution. Yes, so still, I, I think... He could still hang on to power via the constitution. Here's like, some, good, here's some good advice for anyone in politics. If at any point... Your saving grace is the rule book. You have already fucking lost. Like it's over. Like you're. <laughs> if you have to like dig into the sub clauses of of like Article Seven of like whatever, you're done. Like it's over. Just just call it a day. This is not true at committee though. If you're if no you're at committee, no, the, yes. you have a referee. The referee is the clerk. Yes, you're great. Well, yeah, but I, no, but I mean, parliamentary yeah. procedure actually more broadly is rule book driven, so do not take that advice. No, no, no. But I mean, in, in capital P politics, sure. where it's like, yeah, like in this sort of situation, like if they're already chiseling your your statues down, like forget about it. It's it's done. No, uh, procedure is is important. That said, though, I actually have found in the past that clerks have like 
wrongly ruled on on issues of committee so that some extent it doesn't serve you all that well but I, that's that's I the mean, way it goes referees make bad calls everyone knows this boy I let could, me tell you I about some a... sort of sporting reference about a skate <laughs> being in the blue zone or something like that and a skate being in the, the no, have gone for were the haves involved you, in that what you should have gone what you should have gone for was a distinct kicking motion uh the nhl's favorite rule wasn't there a Stanley Cup or something about a skate? Oh uh, yeah, that's what I'm, like that's what I'm referencing. In like the 80s, yeah, or something. Yeah. I think it was while we were. Alive. I was not alive. No, no. Distinct kicking mode. The the kicking rule is a very fun one though because it, it's just like total fucking yeah. Calvin Ball how they apply that one. That's how it goes sometimes. Yeah. Um, okay. Other items on the agenda. I think we have addressed. You wanted to talk about uh, the Prime Minister's mandate when appointing a minister. Yeah, so I mean, last time we talked about mandate letters, um, but after having that episode, I had a... I was thinking back to the conversation we had with Aaron O'Toole, and part of what he said um, struck me as rather interesting, which was when Harper came to him and said, I knight you a cabinet minister, he said, aha, but wait, here's what I want in exchange. Which is... You know, something people, I don't think, often think about. There's the Adam Scotty photos of all the liberal um, cabinet ministers, like, tearing up that are, like, seared in my brain um, from when, you know, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau obviously says, like, you're going to be Minister of X. Those, it's hard to square those with a minister who, in exchange, is saying, aha, here is my counteroffer, here is what I would like to do. And the photos that we're talking about are obviously during the, uh, I mean, they're most, they've happened kind of every time, but are most famous from that first one, which is a period in which you really don't expect, you know, freshly minted cabinet ministers in a brand new government to be pushing back with a particular agenda. Uh, But as the life of a government goes on, as with the example of Aaron O'Toole, who was someone who was uh, becoming a cabinet minister very late in the life of that government, and also becoming a cabinet minister in Veterans Affairs, an issue issue area in which he was well-versed, having been a veteran, as I'm sure everyone knows. Um, Wait, he was in the military? Yeah, I I think for a little bit. Um, He was in the position, basically, to make demands, or he availed himself of the position to make demands. It's not something you hear a lot about, but I think it is actually incredibly consequential and worth discussing, worth discussing here because I don't think anyone else is ever going to discuss it anywhere else. Um, whether or not anyone in the liberal, liberal government has done this when you know Justin Trudeau gives them a call and says, um, I'm going to make you a cabinet minister, we don't know. Um, you know we can speculate and intuit a little bit um, when there's a cabinet minister who is new to the portfolio and suddenly, you know, several long-standing policies change and flip-flop immediately. The first one that comes to mind in this government is um, Mark Miller taking up Crown Indigenous Relations. Um, And he also kind of fits in that. He has, one, someone who has political capital with Justin Trudeau. Two, he is someone who'd been working on the, the issue area and knew it well. And so he got in and suddenly it seemed like things were getting unstuck um, in yeah, and, and to also, the yeah, Canadian Human as, Rights Tribunal decision. As you said regarding uh, his political capital, Justin Trudeau, 
it's not just that they knew each other in, at McGill and all of that. It's that he prominently went up and ate several shit sandwiches for the prime minister, including on announcing that the commitment to uh, end boil water advisories would take another five years. I was going to say he, he arm wrestled uh, village uh, mayors in Africa during their uh, vacation together, as noted in or during their uh, their university uh, year off, as noted in uh, Common Ground. Available well, where fine books are sold. That probably isn't anymore. Yeah, it's. I said oh, where fine books are sold. Ah, I see. I see. Um. So it, it's an interesting thing because no one ever discusses. You know, mandate letters are on the tip of everyone's tongues, and obviously heavy on them, and all the rest of this. Um, but no one discusses the moment at which cabinet ministers can actually substantively ask the prime minister for what's going to be in their mandate letter and or interestingly, in, in, as part of their mandate there was a moment in december i think where david lametti was asked where his mandate letter is and he said i'm waiting for i'm waiting <laughs> for it uh which you know some ministers perhaps take a little more initiative than others on these questions yeah but i think it distinguishes the politician who's just grateful to be there and yes you know, that, just... that's where i was getting at. <laughs> yeah. but it's significant but it's also challenging because you know it is something that no one is going to speak about at the time and no one's going to yeah no to the, until... the pmo staffers are not going to take you aside by the way if you want to make demands of the prime minister now's the time like you kind of got to know that yeah it's, yeah uh... but it's also like as those images uh from adam scotty reveal like when you're pulled into cabinet or when you're put into cabinet it's kind of like uh i was about to say russian roulette but that's the wrong game it's kind of like roulette in terms of okay maybe you've got the meeting and you know you're going to go into cabinet but you don't know what portfolio you are you're in right and that's why the priors in a particular portfolio make you more able to negotiate the terms of your your ministerial yeah like if i was tenure. named agriculture minister right now if they were like we're gonna get up to read a hall i am uh, i am happy to report after long discussions with uh my principal secretary you are minister of fisheries and oceans what do you do yeah i would be like ah sounds good boats are cool yeah like a uh, small craft harbors that's a thing it is a thing. All the right. government's not really funding small craft harbors anymore, as far as Ooh, I know. very, very bad. Ooh, very mean. <laughs> uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm walking out of this room right now if we don't fund small craft harbors. No, but yeah, that, that's the point. Is that like, I, I don't know. You know, so, yeah. Is that, that where you're going to leave that? I, I think that is where I want to leave that. So just a, uh, I mean, if, if someone were inclined to do a, let's call it a, a master's thesis on this. Um, and wanted to interview former cabinet ministers and ask them if they ever asked for anything in return. I think that would be a fascinating area of study. And I will use my reference to master's thesis as just to plug the fact that uh, Canadian politics is incredibly understudied. And there is not a lot of, you know, substantive writing on things going on. Yeah, it is striking in general how much the academic study of political science is removed from the practice of politics in a very real way yeah I, I bet you there is a lot more people writing on like plato's the republic yeah. than yes like i can tell you i I've, I've made this observation before i think there's one book on lobbying in canadian history which seems yeah uh insane um yeah. there's like two people who write on political staff there is like there's just not a very robust yes um 
linkage to politics as it happens uh, day to day. If you do want a practical, focused education on the uh, practice <laughs> of politics that's actually practiced, may we recommend uh, the Riddell MPM program at Carleton University. Although it is not going to take the boxes that we're discussing in terms of, you know, thesis is no academic research of of these five points no but you yes. will get a good grounding in how things actually work it is good recommend to anyone alas listeners this podcast probably would 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 enjoy it any other um items on the agenda that we had previously uh, the broadcasting discussed? bill is back that's that's the only one just wanted to note that we haven't had a chance to read the new one i don't really know what's changed or if anything has changed but uh perhaps we will do an episode on that again uh at some point c10 has evolved into c11 do, 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 do. Um, yep, nope, that, that's really it. Just wanted to put that on the table. Uh, we you, There has not been a whole lot of legislation introduced so far in this parliament, so it'll be fun to sort of see things progress now that we are out of uh, the December-January break and back into regular sittings. We are back. So, yeah. Let, let me make a closing note just to say, uh, boy golly is staffing up this government going slow. Oh, yes, big time. Um, you know, a few weeks ago there was a hundred plus vacancies in ministers offices um a lot of churn a lot a lot of churn um and they've taken to to both linkedin and twitter to advertise (laughs) openings so perhaps uh also of interest to listeners of this podcast um (coughs) which there was a uh there was a notable time at the beginning of this government's life when they first did their general call for staffers. It was kind of like a nationwide call, and I'm sure they got yes, you know, tens of thousands of applications. Um, that very quickly tapered off as they hired most people from the Wynn government, um, yes. as well as assorted others. Um, and then, you know, uh, five years of internal staff shuffling. Um, but now we're very clearly in a new period in which literally hundreds of people left to go work in comms jobs and whatever across the country. Um, and there's... And they cannot find anyone to replace them. Yeah, I would say it's, you know, we've we've talked about this before, which is the later in a government, uh, the later in a government's life or government's tenure that you get, the more like uh, uncredentialed envelope lickers, uh, yeah. which is not a pejorative not entirely a pejorative i feel like any epithet that ends in liquors is usually not a good one (laughs) we respect our campaign volunteers are very valuable i'm just saying they're not bringing as much experience to the table um it's the opportunity cost of being in that government goes up but it's it's very plainly as you know the folks that come to the job early in government indeed so that'll do it for us at the boys in short pants today thank you as always for listening you can rate and review us on itunes all that good stuff follow us on twitter at your pants pod i need more enthusiasm from this pitch this is why no one's writing us because i don't believe you i don't believe i want to rate us on itunes I, you know what if if Man, i find out aaron, if i find out if i found out aaron o'toole did not rate and review us after <laughs> i put him on the spot i think we just found the explanation for why uh why he could not uh, survive no Aaron, if you're listening to this, my apologies. If we're having a little bit of fun at your expense, and I'm sure you're having a, a, a rough go of it, so don't don't take it too personally. Um, but yes, there you go. Bye bye. <laughs>